So let me, let me, let me, first of all, again, I'm going to welcome you and I'm going to jump straight in. I said that you and I are friends, colleagues. We've done public discussions together. I should really uh, rebroadcast the videos of those discussions. But let's just talk about your presidential run. I praised you throughout your presidential run. We don't agree on everything politically, but what I, I thought you did something very brave and very courageous. You didn't care if people were going to say, oh my God, Marianne Williams, is she crazy? Like, what, what is she talking about spirituality? You took a sledgehammer to this artificial barrier that we create that doesn't allow true spirituality to exist in our politics. And we Americans pay lip service to God in politics. You know, we say God bless America and no, no one can be elected president unless they talk about God, but they don't really mean it because they're not really ever talking about anything spiritual. They're talking about the economy and unemployment or now COVID-19 and how we're gonna, but when it comes to the core spiritual fiber of our nation that never, that never enters politics. And you were one of the first to do that what was that like? Well, first of all, I think just historically, we should recognize that the fact that people do not normally do it today is the aberration. Because the tradition throughout American history is that spiritual principles were definitely invoked. Um, look at the second inaugural address uh, of Abraham Lincoln. He right. talked about the Civil War uh, within the context of, of biblical precepts. Uh, Mark, uh, John F. Kennedy said, we cannot afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. Uh, Bobby Kennedy said that what was the, the contest was a contest for the soul of our nation. So I grew up at a time when we read Ram Dass and Alan Watts in the morning, and we went to Vietnam anti-war protests in the afternoon. Because I grew up at a time when the revolution of the 60s and the 70s was a, was a multidimensional cultural revolution. It was musical, it was philosophical, it was political, it was spiritual, it was sexual, it was everything. People at that time when I was growing up weren't expected to stay in their lane. Life has no lanes. That's not, human beings don't have lanes. We are multidimensional beings. So the political establishment has carved out for itself a lane, and it's part of their power play, really. It's part of their way of saying that those who see the world that they do, they are qualified, they're in the club, and anybody else doesn't belong there. But I think um, for those of us who feel from whatever religious tradition, in yours and mine, we are here to repair the world. Uh, also, you and I both as Jews, uh, people, uh, this is true of Jews, it's true of Blacks, it's also true of Muslims. There are certain people whose history is such that, no, you cannot separate what happens, uh, what happens politically from the history of our people. So I felt very convicted, and I do still feel very convicted, that we will not transform this country, we will not repair this country, without seeing, recognizing, um, even in the painful places, that we must look in the mirror. We must look in the mirror as a nation, just like we are called upon on the Day of Atonement to look in the mirror of our own hearts. So to me, Rabbi, whether it's a Catholic on the Day of Confession, or a Jew on the Day of Atonement, or when someone at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting has to admit the exact nature of their character defect, this notion of atonement, of coming clean with God, I feel that this nation needs to come clean with God uh, by whatever name, whatever, you know, God of people's understanding. 
uh, respecting, of course, that our, our, we have a tradition that I do respect, and I respected it in my campaign of using a secular language. That's important because we are a religiously pluralistic society, but the principles of righteousness and humility and doing right by one another and being humble before a higher power and showing reverence for the earth and other people and animals. Um, I did not expect to be mocked and vilified the way I was. Um, so it's not really uh, accurate to say I didn't care um, because at the time it was quite difficult, but the more time goes by, the more I understand and I think other people understand exactly the game that was being played there and why I was considered so inconvenient. Oh, I absolutely expected you to be mocked and vilified, but I actually think that you triumphed. I think that you gained uh, a tremendous amount of uh, national influence, which you had already, but you had it as an author, you had it as a, as a guru, as it were, as, uh, as a great someone with great spiritual insight. And I've known you for a very long time and I know about your integrity and what a good person you are with a good heart. Thank but you. to bring that into politics and to withstand that kind of mockery, I mean, people who promote God and talk about God have always been mocked. I mean, it's part of the tradition of being mocked. It's part of the price we pay. But uh, the point that you're making, that you weren't innovating, you were actually continuing an American tradition of talking about God. Let's face it, let's talk about the hypocrisy for a moment. Look, I'm a Jew who greatly appreciates evangelical Christian support for Israel. Um, but I have issues also with my evangelical brothers and sisters. They want religion in politics, but they want it specifically defined as, okay, uh, opposition to abortion or contraception or gay marriage. Or, you know, I could go on. Uh, Supreme Court justices that abide with a conservative philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to a core discussion of actual spirituality, like you said, walking humbly with God, et cetera, et cetera, these, these, this is a dialogue that never enters uh, politics. And I'm not just criticizing my evangelical brothers and sisters, I'm criticizing my Jewish brothers and sisters, I'm criticizing my Muslim brothers and sisters, I'm criticizing all of us because we really don't allow spirituality, its demands. To come into politics. We really do try to put God in a box. You know, I, I remember so well, Maryam, when you and I did a public dialogue, uh, maybe 10 years ago in New York City, it, you know, it's coming back to me now. You said over and over again, I mean, you were so God-centric. You said over and over again, Shmuley, this is all about God. We don't talk about God enough. It's all about God. Now, in America, we've got on our money. We have God on, you know, God bless America, 4th of July, God bless America. Um, and I, was on 4th of July, I was singing Lee, Lee Greenwood's song that I love so much, you know, God bless the USA. But after a while, it could become an empty mantra. <clears throat> Not that we don't mean it, it's that we don't really think about it because there are certain demands that that means. When you say God bless America, it means that you do have to act in a certain way, comport yourself in a certain way. You just quoted uh, Lincoln's second inaugural. Lincoln said something astonishing in that second inaugural. He essentially said, and he's considered our greatest president, both by historians and laymen alike, he essentially said, that God was punishing the United States. That's for exactly what he said. And that, and Thomas exactly. Jefferson, right? And Thomas Jefferson kind of said the same thing. Jefferson owned slaves. Jefferson said it would happen. Right. He, he said, said he stutters for his country happen. when he thinks about what that God's patience is not everlasting, and God will ultimately I catch up for my country when I consider God is just and that His justice will not sleep forever. Right. Well, that's those are those that them are fighting words. Do you think America is being punished with COVID-19? Have we done something wrong? I don't think it's about punishment. I think it's about the law of cause and effect. And I, I don't think uh, COVID-19 is uh, specifically about that. Although COVID-19, whether it came from bats or whether it came from a lab, 
does on some level originate from a lack of reverence, either reverence towards animals and the ecosystem, because even if it came from bats, there, is, there are explanations that have to do with the, with the unbalancing of the ecosystem regarding bats and, and regarding viruses that become more common. If it had to do with a, uh, with a lab, it also has to do with a lack of reverence because it shows the insanity of the human race that we even think about creating viruses with which to destroy each other, even if it escaped and they didn't mean for it to escape. What does it say about the consciousness of humanity that we're even creating? Basically, that's a germ warfare, basically. So I do believe that we have thrown the world so off balance you know, if, if we believe that we are here to, to love one another, if we believe that we are here to do right by each other, if we believe that we are here to do uh, what God would have us do to repair the world, and this is a universal spiritual theme at the heart of all the great religious teaching, that we are here as a, with a purpose, and that's to, to repair that breach, to repair the world, but which all the great system, religious systems speak of this, then you don't, you don't in the richest country in the world tolerate that 1,300 children, uh, 13 million children go to school hungry every day. You don't tolerate what we're doing to the uh, to the to the planet. You don't tolerate what we're doing with the most massive transfer of wealth into the hands of a very few people, even during a pandemic, so that you are actually increasing the suffering of so many millions of people. You know, Rabbi, traditionally in the United States, these are moral issues, right? Because of the, if spirituality is a path of the heart, you, you can't avoid the moral issues. However, traditionally in the United States, the right wing of the political spectrum focused on issues of personal morality and the left side of the political spectrum focused on issues of public morality. When I was growing up, there was a religious left in this country. War and peace is a moral issue. Economic justice is a moral issue. Racial reconciliation, reparations, race-based policies, uh, uh, dealing with the legacies of slavery is a moral issue. Uh, this collective abuse and, and, and withhold of, 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 of resources for America's children is a moral issue. So I, I believe that when you're talking about spiritual issues, you're talking about moral issues, and we have to recognize that this is the right wing does not have a monopoly on a deep conversation uh, about morality. No, I would even say that the problem is when we divide everybody into, into right and left. Look, I, I feel that in your campaign, you know, I watched the debates and I feel that you were trying to uh, rise above just a right-left divide. Yes, I recognize you were running in the Democratic primaries. I recognize that you were running in a particular party, but I really think that you were trying to rise above that kind of partisanship and try to speak to American values, whether we call it morality or, or American values. It's got to be something that unites us because the deep hatred that divides us, like bef well before the coronavirus, uh, you're speaking about the, the law of, uh, of uh, you know, consequences that even you're saying, if, even if coronavirus isn't some sort of divine punishment and none of us can say any such thing because we don't know the mind of God and that would trivialize the suffering and all the death of people who've succumbed to, to COVID-19. But well before a virus came out of uh, China, a moral virus was coming out of China insofar as they were suppressing human rights. Um, they were uh, putting uh, Muslims into concentration camps. And we didn't care about that moral virus coming out of China because they were making cheap garbage for us 
that we could buy 80% cheaper than if it were made in the United States. And so we overlooked it until we couldn't overlook it anymore because it began to affect our health. So the moral issues are so often overlooked and I've always believed certainly in a moral foreign policy. You're bringing up issues about a moral domestic policy, of course, and we can debate what constitutes a more moral issue or a more moral approach because no doubt people on the right would say, well, giving people individual liberties and making sure they keep more of their money so they can give more charity and it's more voluntary as opposed to the government taking from you. Okay, I get all that. I don't mind that conversation. I welcome that conversation. I wish we talked about moral issues. I, I wish we talked about that. And that's why I so valued your candidacy. So do you think any of that is left in, in the discourse right now between Republicans and Democrats? Well, I do um, hear the word love a lot more. I certainly hear talk about reparations a lot more. Um, I certainly hear, you know, I wrote a book called Healing the Soul of America. And Jill Biden read it. <laughs> Clearly, the Bidens got the phrase. Um, and you wrote a politics of love. Yeah, but I, before that, wrote Healing the Soul of America. So, um, yes, I think that the, uh, some of the conversations that we opened up, um, I hear, politicians saying we need radical truth telling. Yeah, I definitely see some phrases, uh, but it remains to be seen whether it will remain just on the level of phrase or whether it will go to the level of the meat uh, that has to be underneath all that for it to be truly meaningful. Well, if you want to talk about a politics of love again, which is the title of your book, um, isn't one of the problems that love it just doesn't really sell. I mean, it sells maybe in self-help circles when people are looking. You spoke about the, the microcosm and the macrocosm, cosm, more personal morality as opposed to public morality. What people want today is fighting and hatred, demonization. They want CNN attacking the right. They want Fox attacks, attacking the left. They want Trump's tweets attacking his political adversaries. They want Biden saying, you know, Trump is destroying America. And, and uh, in the same way, we have this little screen that Zoom automatically creates between the two of us. That's all we got. I'm actually a little bit bored of it, to be perfectly honest, because um, I don't see that this is sustainable. And every time I say to myself, you know, it's gonna turn because people are gonna want more harmony. They're gonna want more solutions. They're gonna want greater, uh, a more United States of America. Every time I, I think that or say it, I, I'm wrong. It becomes more divisive, more, more partisan. And I don't see, you know, any way back. And, I, and I'm not sure that the candidates, I mean, your candidacy was an anomaly. Um, I'm not sure the candidates are really prepared to, to embrace it. I think that they're trying to cater to their base, fire up their base, and that comes through a politics of hate as opposed to a politics of love. And, and, and I think that both, both parties are guilty. Well, first of all, when you talk about all the hate and all the uh, crosstalk and all the mean-spiritedness, that's what you get if you watch television all day. Uh, that's what you get if you're uh, part of the mainstream media narrative and the president's tweets and all of that. But when you actually look around, what you see in this country is a lot of love. Uh, look at the doctors, look at the nurses, look at the people taking care of each other, taking care of their children, showing up at the window to show their new baby to their grandparents who are on the other side of it. I think when you turn off television and look at what's happening, people on Zoom calls with their family members, uh, you were saying cottage for your father tonight. Life has gone on. And far more people in this country, and I believe in this world, love than hate. 
So right now, hatred is being expressed with conviction. Uh, hatred is being expressed loudly. But I do believe there's far more love. I just think love is whispering in some places where we too need to speak up. Now, in terms of politics, uh, the problem as I see it is that we have developed a political establishment uh, which stays within a particular mindset. And within that mindset, it does not allow for a certain kind of spiritual conversation. The problem though, is not just that the mindset and the perspective does not allow for spiritual conversation. The much bigger problem is that it doesn't allow for spiritual understanding. So sometimes when these people are considered the qualified ones to lead us forward, this is very disturbing to me because in my, in my mind, some of that mindset should almost disqualify a person for the kind of multidimensional holistic understanding, including spiritual consciousness that I believe is necessary in order for us to survive as a species over the next hundred years. Well, that's kind of a way of saying that the politicos have marginalized themselves from the mainstream because if you're saying that the mainstream really does whisper with love, but the politicos just shout hatred. And again, it's on both sides. Then you're really saying that people who are engaged in professional politics are out of touch with the people, but that means that we can't influence politics. See, what I see is that you entered the fray and a lot of people who are in, in the spiritual realm, they don't wanna go into politics. They think it's gonna sully them. They think it's gonna compromise them. They think that they're gonna automatically have to choose. I remember um, you and I both know Dr. Mehmet Oz. Uh, Dr. Oz is a very good friend. He and I were discussing this. He does a daily show. Uh, he promotes medicine and, and healing and holistic health. He told me in politics, you need 51%. That's all you need to win. But to be on TV, if you wanna be mainstream or be an author, you need 80%. No television host who only has 51% of the audio who's hated by say 49% of the country is gonna survive on TV. So do you think that you paid any price by choosing a party? And you and I both ran for office. You know, I ran as a Republican in District 9 uh, of, uh, of New Jersey and lost. You ran for uh, Congress uh, in California. I think two, uh, the cycle after me, I, I was in 2012. You were 2014? 14. 14, right. And we talked about that. Remember when we spoke in Reno, Nevada together, we were talking about a possible congressional race. Do you feel that you had to choose a side that you had to show your readers and your followers, the people with whom you have influence that you now are part of one camp and therefore you lose the allegiance of the other camp? No, I think the camps are a problem, increasingly so. Um, political parties were not mentioned in the Constitution, and George Washington warned us against them uh, in leaving office. He said in his farewell address that parties would form factions of men who would care more about their faction than about their country. And when you look at the history of the United States, third party voices have been extremely influential. Abolition came from the Abolitionist Party, Women's suffrage came from the Women's Party. Social Security came from the Socialist Party. But back in the 1960s, in response to the candidacy and the, and the influence of George Wallace, the Democrats and Republicans formed a pretty unholy alliance. They took the presidential debates away from the League of Women Voters, and they together made it very, very difficult for third party voices to be heard. Uh, I ran as an independent when I ran for Congress, and I found from that experience how naive I was to think you could get anywhere. 
and uh, I ran as a Democrat for president, you, you have to run, I mean, the only chance you can have. And I, I don't have a problem doing that, but I'm a Democrat, the Democratic Party that I grew up with, I'm beginning to think more and more is very different than the Democratic Party that has become uh, not as corporatist as the Republican Party, but far too dominated by corporate money and corporate policies for my taste. Let me ask you to comment on this, Marianne. This year's a compliment. Uh, so, you know, the, the very influential pollster, Nate Silver, he recently tweeted after Kanye West announced that he's running for president. And by the way, Kanye just called me and asked me if I'd be his veep, but I got no time for that. That was a joke, by the way. Okay. Um, he said, don't dismiss Kanye West because politics is crazy now. People are the same people who were like, don't dismiss Marianne Williamson because politics is crazy right now. So Marianne Williamson has become almost a catchphrase for limitless possibility in politics. How, how, do, you, how do you see that tweet? I don't think that's what he was saying at all. I think it was a very snarky, condescending tweet. Really? Um, no, absolutely, because he was saying, we don't have to worry about him. People said we had to worry about Marianne Williamson, but you don't, we, as it turns out, we didn't have to worry about Marianne Williamson. Um, oh, I, I, I read it, well, then I, then I misread it, because I read it more as people did not expect you to get traction, and you got a lot of traction. I was very proud of you. Watching the debates, I got to tell you, you were mesmerizing. And I was in Alaska when I was watching it, so it wasn't even easy. We were like in rural Alaska, and uh, God, you can only dream of going to beautiful places like that right now during COVID-19, but I'm in rural Alaska just trying. So I end up having to listen to it and your words as well, you know, you're so, thank God, uh, eloquent and you were much more eloquent than anyone else on the stage. I thought it was a kind of compliment, but perhaps it was snarky. Well, however one might read his comments in terms of the debate, I thank you if I had had a chance to be on the stage a third time. I think I was starting to get my sea legs under me in the second debate. And if I think, I think that if I had been able to be in the third debate, I would have, I would have been a factor uh, bigger. You would have increased viewership significantly. You were the most searched person yeah. on Twitter after the first well, debate, right? But that's why someone said, get that woman off the stage. So within three days, you couldn't open up a computer or a newspaper or a television show that someone wasn't saying I was anti-vax, anti-medicine, anti-science, dangerous, crazy grifter. The talking points were everywhere. It was, uh, it was an ubiquitous wave of mockery and vilification and I, I just didn't have it together to override that the way I wish I had. I wasn't quite tough enough. You know, it's so funny talking about your spiritual path because I feel so much of my spiritual path in my adult life has been about becoming less tough but as a presidential candidate, uh, I wish I'd been tougher. You know, I was sort of ambushed by Anderson Cooper on, on um, TV one night and I, 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 I listened to my heart, you know, in The Course in Miracles, there is a line, in my defenselessness, my safety lies. But in looking back at it, I wish I had just given it right back to him. So somebody said to me recently that in a political campaign, there are three issues people, policies, and politics. He said, you know, Marianne, you had it together with people. You know how to talk to the voters. You had it together on policies. You had your, your website was more, you know, was, was more complete than almost anybody else's, he said. But when it came to politics, if you want, he said, if you want to be in the game, you got to play the game. 
And uh, but, but you got you got you got to start. I, I, I had some things to learn. Well, you're you're uh, a dignified person, and you probably felt God Almighty. I, I don't want to become that person. That's true. I don't want to throw a punch. I don't want to become vicious. And that's yeah. But you know, but that's what keeps good people out of politics, which is which is a great shame. But are you saying that once you started to gain traction after the first debate, and people were shocked that you were the most searched uh, candidate after the first debate? I remember CNN talking about that again. I was in Alaska at the time. Um, are you saying that there was some the word conspiracy is too strong a word, but there was some organized effort to <laughs> buy, buy the party to make sure that you did not become the face of the party? Well. That's pretty clear. I mean, like I said, there were talking points that were everywhere, that I was dangerous, I was crazy. I told AIDS patients not to take their medicine. I, 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 I that I told people, I, I, the, the most crazy things were said, yeah. And there, there is a political media industrial complex. And- uh, But you're saying the political media industrial complex had it out for you or the Democrats? And I'm not saying this to knock the Democrats, I'm, I'm really not. I would knock the Republicans just as much if they do if they would do the same thing. But are you saying it was the media industrial complex or it was the Democratic Party that didn't want you up there? Um, I, to whatever extent I know, I don't want to say. Um, I, I I just think there is a political and media establishment elite. Uh, I don't think it's Democrat or Republican, um, and I think uh, they have a way of uh, protecting their own and suppressing voices that they don't wish uh, to be on the stage with them. Well, look, if, if, it's the, if it's the Democratic Party that was doing that because they felt, look, she's not gonna be a serious candidate anyway, so why is she like taking oxygen from the people we need to really uh, register with, with the voters and, and achieve greater name recognition, whoever was at the time, Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or Amy Klobuchar, uh, or my friend Cory Booker, and you know, me and Cory go way back to Oxford when he was my student president. Then I understand that if they don't want Marianne Williamson to suddenly begin to dominate, oh, if she's not going to go anywhere anyway, why is she taking all of this oxygen? But the media, I would have thought the exact opposite. I would have thought the media would see you as, as a ratings bonanza, yeah. uh, that you were boosting uh, viewership. Yeah. Because, look, because look, the one thing that even people who hate Trump, really hate Trump, like about Trump is that he shook politics up. Because it was becoming very staid, very, very poll driven. You know, all these guys were waking up in the morning and reading whatever the pollsters told them. They would go and say it, and you could almost mouth it with them. And uh, and Trump came along, and he was utterly. You know, some people hate that about him, and some people wanted you know someone to to shake politics up. Now I'm not comparing you and Trump. You have very different styles, obviously, <laughs> obviously, obviously. But from the standpoint of being an apolitical politico. Mm -hmm. You were exactly what the doctor ordered in the Democratic Party. So I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that they would have it out for you. Okay, so I have a couple things to say to that. And first of all, in response to the last thing you said, I do believe that I was kind of the perfect homeopathic remedy because I feel that the president has ushered in an age of political theater and we will not be going back. But I have two things to say, one about the party and one about the media. I, I think we need to remember that it's the voters who should be making the decisions. The job of the DNC should not be to in any way dictate the process. The job of the DNC to, is, is not to dictate it. It's not to manipulate it. The job of the DNC is to facilitate the process. The DNC is not needed to come in. The phrase everybody was using, they needed to narrow the field. 
No, they didn't. That's the purpose of the primaries. And so what I saw, and I'm sure you saw this when you ran too, even though I feel I saw the system is even more corrupt than I realized, the people, the, the voters are even more intelligent than I knew. Uh, what I found in Iowa and New Hampshire, those early primary states, was that people were more than ready and more than able to perform the very important function that they had. Uh, every time you spoke as a candidate, they appropriately kicked the tires. They were appropriately tough in their questioning. And I think in 2016 and in 2020, that if it had really just been left to the Democratic voters, uh, that uh, we would have had some extraordinarily different results. In terms of the media, I agree with you. You'd think they would have, you know, if they, if they would have given the extraordinary shot to Trump they had, but maybe that's what they thought, that, yeah, Trump was crazy, and so we let it happen, we can't let it happen again, but the problem there is that I'm not crazy, and there is such a thing as journalistic ethics. Uh, too many people who are journalists in America today apparently don't remember what they read in their ethics classes, uh, what they learned, and even more than that, there are many people, particularly online, who are performing the role of journalists, but they are not educated as journalists. They do not have a conversation around journalistic ethics. They have no problem repeating uh, lies, uh, if that'll be the higher click rate. Uh, they have no uh, feeling, no moral responsibility to fact check. Uh, they have no problem just using an anonymous tweet as a source. And if you, if you get caught in that web of deceit, it's very difficult as a political candidate to overcome it, particularly if you don't have the kind of money uh, that others have. Well, um, well, I guess what Donald Trump would say to that is that's why he circumvents the media by using social media. Um, Marianne, when, when you ran, I actually tweeted up a storm in support of you. And a lot of people, uh, you know, knowing that I'm a big defender of Israel, very, very strong pro-Israel activist, a lot of people writing to me and saying, oh, but she's, how could you praise Marianne Williamson? She's like condemning President Trump and Trump is so good to Israel, et cetera. And I said to them, you know, with all due respect, have we really arrived at a time when we cannot single out aspects of candidates that we really love and admire and respect, especially when they're doing something fresh? You brought such a fresh dimension to this campaign. It was, I was actually really, upset when you weren't in the third debate. I thought it was a travesty. It's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on. I know you, I know your heart, I know your authenticity, I know your goodness, I know your sweetness, and you're, you're an extraordinary woman. And I wish we had more candidates like you. Um, you should know, I'm not a conservative, meaning I have a lot of conservative policies, like I believe in a strong foreign policy to challenge dictators, anti-genocide, I do believe in an interventionist foreign policy where people are being slaughtered in mass, et cetera. I'm happy that Trump struck at Assad after he used chemical weapons against innocent Muslim children, et cetera, et cetera. But then again, on other issues, uh, I have a gay brother who's an Orthodox Jew. Um, Judaism is not strictly uh, anti-abortion the way um, uh, Catholicism would be. It has a much different approach. But the point I'm making is, a more nuanced approach to politics where we don't always have to fit into a box. I kind of wish that that were there. I remain very grateful to President Trump for his strong policies on Israel. And we, and we may not agree on all of that, but I do remain very uh, uh, grateful. I was at the opening of the embassy in Jerusalem. We Jews wanted Jerusalem recognized by the United States as the Jewish people's eternal capital. I think Iran should have been condemned uh, by President Obama who had enormous 
uh, virtue, but not on Iran because they kept on threatening the Jewish people with annihilation and our people have already experienced one, you know, we've experienced one genocide too many just 75 years ago, but that's not the point. The point I'm making is I wish that instead of having to adopt the entire brand of a party or the entire brand of a candidate, I wish we could use our brains and our values to say, I agree with this, I disagree with this, without it having to be this all or nothing. It, we've all become idiots. Our politics are stupid. And, okay. and yeah. I'm sorry. No, please go on. And, and I was going to say that it lacks spiritual empathy. You want to bring greater spirituality. The essence of spirituality is nuance. It's, 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 it's finding that uh, the, the, the intangible. And, and politics today is so harsh. It's so mean. It's so harsh. And people seem to just want more of that. Well, it's unintelligent. You know, uh, Eisenhower said that the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. There are high-minded conservative principles and there are high-minded liberal principles. And at our best, there's a kind of yin and yang between the two. So I agree with you, just as the, the Jewish people, just as Israel is neither West nor East. Uh, the, the, all of these different aspects of who we are uh, come into play. Uh, I do want to mention, because you were talking about Jews, uh, one of the things that I found um, really horrible was my erasure by APAC and J Street both. Uh, they would write articles about how, well, we have two Jews running. We have Bloomberg running and we have Bernie running. My brother, it used to upset my brother so much. This was not only a, another Jew running, a Jewish woman was running. And uh, that, that told me a lot about those organizations and the, how much they just play the game uh, and how uh, I thought that was rather, I was offensive, offended on behalf of all, of all Jewish women. And I also feel, Rabbi, that my views on Israel, uh, I, was, uh, I was always welcoming questions from the audience. I think I was the only candidate out there saying, okay, let's talk about Israel. Um, and uh, I actually believe it's, it's one of the things that I believe uh, as a candidate and uh, if I had ever gotten close to the White House, I could have uh, brought a um, something meaningful. Well, I, I had no idea about the APEC thing and I know the leaders of APEC and uh, I'm actually gonna turn for a moment to someone who's off camera here. Uh, my dear friend and, uh, and colleague, Ariel Abergel, who put this all together and Ariel just got an interesting position that will be announced soon, but he's been my uh, right hand in a lot of stuff that I do for the past year. I'm going to turn to him right now. I want to approach my friends at APAC, the APAC leadership. I want to ask them about this, because if that's the case, I am deeply upset. Because I was tweeting up a storm that you're a very proud Jewish woman. We've done events together. You were always a proud Jewish woman. Um, not that your candidacy was ever limited to your Jewishness, but I think it was enhanced and magnified by your Jewishness, because we, the Jewish people, as you've quoted so many times, we believe in, in healing the world and, uh, you know, tikkun olam, and it's our, it's our foremost passion. We are a this world oriented religion. So I did not know that. I'm glad you mentioned it. No, you brought my brother crazy. He was no, you, you, have, you have my word that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this up, but I'm going to find out what happened. And yeah, J Street was just as bad as APEC. Well, J, J Street's not my favorite cup of tea, so they're probably, I think I have less influence than J Street. Yeah, you have less influence there, I understand. <laughs> Me and Jeremy Benami had a kind of uh, yeah. memorable debate on CNN once, um, and we we were friendly to each other in, in the green room. But once we got on TV, 
we spoke about political theater. We we did the whole political theater thing, but APAC's a different story. So I wanna find out about that, Ariel, great. Um, Marianne, let me ask you uh, just to, as we kind of wrap up and I'm so grateful for your time. I'm grateful to you, thank you, Rabbi. Schools are so important and kids getting educated are so important. And you know that, thank God I have nine children and uh, we have kids who are still, uh, we have a daughter who's still, uh, we have a 12 year old just bus mitzvah in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a 14 year old who's uh, entering, just finished middle school. Um, do you think the schools, this whole debate, should the schools reopen given the, the, the dangers? You know that our, our mutual friend, uh, you know, Dr. Oz got into a lot of, he got a lot of criticism when he said that the schools should open. And I'm, I'd love to hear your opinion on it given how important we both, how much we value education. I think it's worth noting that Betsy Oz, uh, Betsy DeVos said the same thing that he said and nobody's going crazy. I, I believe this, I believe the schools should not open. I believe that if we had treated this situation correctly, if the federal government had had a strategy, if we had accepted the testing kits from the WHO, if the president had at any point invoked the uh, Defense Production Act, if we had the equipment that we need, if, our, if we had the PPE that we need, um, there are so many uh, ways in which we could have contained this virus uh, rather than allowing it to become the catastrophic uh, wave of horror that it is. Given the fact that we have not handled it better, I think we are absolutely no, in no way prepared uh, to send our children back to school. Now, if we do send the children back to school, it should only be under the guidelines, strictly according to the guidelines of the CDC, that there are masks, that there is social distancing, that there is proper protective gear. The president says that this is too impractical and too expensive. Notice we're spending billions and billions and billions bailing out a huge corporate interest without even uh, requiring them to pay their workers. We are not giving, uh, as other countries are doing, direct cash relief to people. Basically, our government is telling people to drop dead quite literally. And so the idea that our children should be sacrificed at the altar of this greed because protecting them would be too expensive or too impractical, if anything, is an example of the fractured soul of this country. If you, if you do not put the protection of your children first, something is so wrong on a spiritual level. Uh, we, whether it has to do with 13 million hungry children going to school in America, even before this happened, uh, uh, the pandemic, 100,000 homeless children in America, millions of children, uh, Rabbi, go to school in this country in classrooms where they don't even have the adequate school supplies to, with which to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased. The chances of incarceration are drastically increased. We have millions of children in this country who are diagnosed or diagnosable with a form of PTSD as severe as a returning veteran from Afghanistan and Iraq. In other words, are, there's a huge swath of invisible suffering among America's children, but they're not old enough to vote, so they're not a constituency. They're not an, uh, old enough to work, so they don't have any financial leverage to wield in Congress. And so they're given lip service. So the fact that we're even talking about sending them back to school, because that'll increase the economy without even considering the CDC guidelines that are necessary is unfortunately part and parcel of the collective child neglect that this society um, uh, 
uh, uh, perpetrates, I believe, which is why this was a large part of my campaign for the presidency and why I, I pointed out that we need a, depart a cabinet level Department of Children and Youth. The only agency in the US government that is specifically geared to helping children is the Administration for Family and Children. It's part of HHS. It has a $58 billion budget every year compared to $760 billion in defense. You tell me what that says about the moral state of America. If a, uh, let me ask you a final question, Marianne. If, if you mentioned before that you were criticized during the campaign about uh, on vaccinations, that was before COVID-19. If they do come up with a vaccine, would you take it? Oh, for COVID? Yeah. Oh, for COVID. Well, certainly we hope that there will be a vaccine for COVID. My issue, you know, I had made an admittedly sloppy comment about mandatory vaccines. I have never made a, quote, anti-vax statement. If you do question the safety of vaccines, you know, we have attorneys general all over this country, Rabbi, who are, as you and I speak, uh, bringing indictments against uh, pharmaceutical company executives. Uh, for their known predatory practices uh, leading to Oxycontin overuse, drug overdoses, the opioid crisis. We have right now Gilead uh, drug pharmaceuticals. They are taking a, an anti, a COVID, actually a, a medicine that can help with COVID that costs something like seven, $70 to manufacture and they are charging 3,000. We, we know for instance that uh, the, the, the United States government had surrendered to pharmaceutical companies because of their $284 million lobbying last year alone, it's right to negotiate. So do I believe that when it comes to the vaccinations of our children, we need to ask the deeper questions about the safety of vaccines? I do not apologize for that. I think that this deference to big pharma has to do with politics and it does not put the questioning that we need for our children. Am I anti-vax? No, of course well, let, I'm not. Let me, sorry, I don't want to take any much more of your time, but let me just reverse that for a moment then. <laughs> because I, I'm not a doctor, and but I follow all these debates and I know some of the people who are involved in the debates and, and I'm able to have access to them to ask them directly. Yeah. So take the hydroxychloroquine debate. So Trump has been, you know, the biggest apostle of hydroxychloroquine and, and then said that he's taking it prophylactically. Uh, and then it seems that many on the other side are condemning hydroxychloroquine. I don't know a darn thing about hydroxychloroquine, but I went to someone who does know and I said, I don't understand, how did this become a right left issue? Like why, who cares? Like why? And he explained it to me. He said, hydroxychloroquine, the treatment is 20 bucks. From Desivir, as you said, is 3,500. And it's been shown to reduce a hospital stay from 15 days to 10 days. So it is effective, God forbid, if you're sick. And that's wonderful. We need more drugs that can save lives. But as you said, it's 3,500 bucks uh, per treatment. So this guy said to me, someone in the know, someone extremely, I wish I had his permission because it's someone very influential um, in, in the medical profession. They said to me, so here's the thing. This is why it's political. If Trump is correct that hydroxychloroquine is an effective treatment against COVID-19 and it's only 20 bucks, then the coronavirus can be seen as, let's say, less lethal insofar as for a, for a more modest sum of money it can be treated. But if it can only be treated with 3,500 bucks, then it's much more serious. And that person explained to me why it's become so political. So in other words, the hydroxychloroquine debate seems to be a malaria drug that's been around for 70 years, can it really help? And other countries are using it as part of their- part By the way, and by the way, I'm really not taking a side because I'd be stupid to, I'm not a doctor. I'm married to a doctor's daughter. My wife needs to tell me which aspirin to take. I, I know so little about medicine. 
but I've, I've just been fascinated about how the malaria drug has become the most divisive issue in America today. To some people in this country, the free market is a religion. The reason we didn't accept the testing kits from the, w, from the World Health Organization is because there was money theoretically that might have been made by American companies. The first tests they made were faulty. That put us back. The very fact that we, the president has not invoked the, uh, uh, the Defense, uh, Defense Production Act is because this might get in the way of somebody making money. And you better believe it, Rabbi, that that conversation um, about hydrochloroquine, like so many of the other conversations, have to do with the, with the issue of who is going to make how much money. And that is being put first. And um, anybody who thinks otherwise, anybody who thinks that big pharmaceutical companies um, aren't, uh, uh, anybody, let's put it this way, anybody who thinks that they are just pure as the driven snow in every possible area is fooling themselves. And so the question that you are asking is a legitimate one. I have read many articles myself and um, yeah. There are a lot of questions. I'm not a doctor either, but I'm intelligent enough to read the articles. There are some serious questions about where it's about health and where it's about money. Yeah, I want to find out more about this. And we, Ariel and I will organize a discussion about this. Listen, Marianne, I've taken way too much of your time because it's late. Um, I just want to repeat, and uh, you know, we Jews have this famous Talmudic expression. Uh, in Hebrew, it rhymes even better than in English. So in English, it's words that emanate from the heart, penetrate the heart. And in the, and in in Hebrew it's dvarim min nichnasim words that emanate from the heart penetrate. So I want to tell you just sincerely, uh, I I am honored to call you a friend. Um, I think that you brought great blessing to the American political system. Uh, I think you have so many more admirers than you would otherwise suppose. As far as uh, the darts that were thrown at you and everything, you'll have to wear it as a badge of honor, because a lot of uh, as you call it the media industrial complex, a lot of it is pretty sick. And maybe you exposed uh, a lot of that uh, of that unhealthiness, but I was very proud of you, and I saw what you did. You know, one of the things that I really liked about what you did, I thought it was damn gutsy, Marianne. It was damn gutsy to put yourself out there and to speak about. And you didn't compromise yourself at all. The same Marianne Williamson, who I know and who I appeared with doing talks about God and religion, and uh, was the same Marianne Williamson who was on the the, the debate podium. And that takes a lot of integrity not to conform and not to change and not to just to try to fit in. So uh, you're a trailblazer and you're a spiritual trailblazer and you, you bring great integrity to our political system, but more importantly, to the nation at large. So I hope we'll talk to you again. Well, and I I thank you. I thank you for those very kind and generous words. And I'm honored to call you friend. I'm certainly honored by your words here tonight. It was lovely talking to you. It's always a lovely talking to you, and uh, let's do more of it. It, uh, it's we we spent too long this time between between conversations. Let's make sure we stay in touch. Well, you were busy running for president, so you had a good excuse. I had no excuse. I guess I was busy, you know, raising nine kids. Thank God. But, but I I, I will tell you that you've made me into a better rabbi and a better Jew. Our friendship, because as I said, in all the public events that we did, you always said over and over again. You say Shmuley it's all about God. You got to say the word God. You got to speak about God. In other words, you, you were always so careful to ensure that religion didn't just become a set of empty ritual that lacked God as its epicenter. And I, I was always grateful for that. So God bless you, Marianne, and have a God very good night. You too. Thank you so much. God bless your family. Bye-bye. God bless.